Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. We're nearing the end of our series on Made for Mission, and the whole intent behind the last few months of our study has been around the idea of how do we, as believers in Jesus Christ, dial into and become the kind of people that live the mission that we were created to live. Jesus said it very clearly before he left this earth that we are called to go and make disciples of people who are not disciples, baptizing them into Jesus Christ, and then at the same time helping people learn how to obey all the things that Jesus has commanded us. So discipling is a birth and it is a life that is lived following Jesus Christ. And we are called as Christians to help other people do that. And we have seen not only the DNA of this mission all the way through um, uh, the month of November, but we've seen the last few, mo- the last few weeks, pardon me, how this mission of Jesus Christ gets taken to different groups of people. We've seen how Jesus wants us to take this mission to the wayward, those that once walked with him but no longer walk with him anymore. Jesus has a heart for those people to continue to go after them so that they may come home. We saw how Jesus took the mission to the broken, the woman caught in adultery whose life is just in turmoil and tangled in sin, and how disciple-making mission is brought to her. Last week, we saw how the mission is brought to those who are exhausted, those who are running their life at full tilt, but don't know where they're going or what they're doing, not satisfied, not finding what they're wanting out of life and wanting something different. And Jesus brings the mission, as we saw, to Zacchaeus, a man who was exhausted with what he was doing. Today, our story finds an unnamed woman. And we're going to call this mission to the outsider. And by outsider, what I mean is a person who appears from all visible standpoint that he or she just doesn't belong in the crowd in which they're in. They look different. They act different. Out of all the people that are surrounded them, they're the one that sort of stands out and they don't fit in. They're different than anyone that they're near. Now, this person who's the outsider is a little bit different than the person who's broken. As we saw in John chapter 8, the woman who was caught in adultery has a lot of similar characteristics to this woman in Luke chapter 7. But there's one subtle yet major difference that you've got to see. The woman who was caught in adultery was not of her own volition coming after and seeking Jesus. She was caught in adultery, she was grabbed, she was a pawn in the game that the Pharisees and the scribes were playing, and she was brought to Jesus, and Jesus taught her. Now this woman, in Luke chapter 7, is an outsider because, yes, she has a life that is riddled with sin, but she's come to see Jesus. She's heard some of His teaching. She's aware of what He's presenting about this radical new kingdom of God that has interest her. And she is coming with humility, conviction, repentance, and submission. But she doesn't fit in with those around Jesus at the table. She's different. And so we see from her a story of a person who's an outsider, who seeks Jesus. What we want to learn today is how he ministers to her. 
one of the things I want to do with this uh, passage, this story, is try my very best to keep it really simple. This is one of those passages that if you dissect it too much and dig into it too much, you might actually miss the beauty of the passage, the beauty of the story. It's overwhelming. So for just this morning's purposes, I want to make sure we understand the scene, and I'm going to make two very basic points. Basically ask two questions. One is, why is this woman actually an outsider? What made her an outsider? And question two is, how did Jesus take the mission of disciple-making to this woman who is an outsider? Those are the only two questions. But let's make sure we understand the scene. Okay, so here we have, in this scene, three main characters. You've got Simon the Pharisee, you've got Jesus the Savior, and you've got this unnamed woman who is the sinner. And Simon, we don't know the city that they're in right now, the town that they're in, but Simon invites Jesus over for a dinner. And this was a very common courtesy that was extended. So the local teacher, the local religious leader would invite a traveling preacher or traveling teacher or traveling rabbi to come to his house and have him over for dinner. But Simon's got some other alternative motives here. He's probably wanting to feel Jesus out. He's heard about some of these teachings about the kingdom of God that Jesus is saying that are a little bit different, slightly radical. So he's wanting to find out, do he and Jesus probably have some common ground? He might be wanting to feel Jesus out to see what kind of man he is. He might be wanting to find out, maybe he's heard some reports that maybe Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah. And, you know, Simon being a Pharisee is wanting the Messiah to come, the kind of Messiah he wants. And so maybe he wants to find out who Jesus is. Worst case scenario, he just wants to get popular because he's got Jesus at his house. For whatever reason, it's a customary thing to do for him to invite Jesus to his house. But we see something strange about Simon. Simon offers Jesus none of the customary greetings that would be offered to a person who was coming over for a dinner, especially an important teacher. He offers him no greeting with a hand on the shoulder and a kiss on the cheek, no welcome greeting. He offers him no water for his feet to clean his feet after walking and wearing sandals. He offers him no oil for his head, a drip of oil to kind of refresh his skin after the heat had probably baked upon him. He offers none of those things. And what we gather from Simon is that he's most likely trying to make a point. That he, although recognizing Jesus as a teacher, is the teacher, Simon is. And he's posturing here a little bit. He's trying to set the stage that he's above Jesus, that he's greater than Jesus. And he hasn't done anything to make Jesus feel welcome or accepted. And so this woman, this unnamed woman, hears that Jesus is dining at Simon's house and she decides that she's going to go. She likely heard about Jesus and his teaching. She probably had something stirring in her heart about this man's message of healing, not just of the body, but of the soul. And she's magnetized to Jesus. She's drawn to Jesus. She's a seeker, but she doesn't look like other religious people that are around the table with Jesus and Simon. She doesn't look like any of them. Now, most likely, she had probably never been to Simon's house. We know for sure she'd probably never been inside Simon's house. Now, she was probably a girl that stopped going to the synagogue where Simon teaches. She might have had family that went to the synagogue where Simon was a part of, and Simon might have known her. We get an idea that Simon does know her when he says in his mind about this woman, if Jesus knew who she was, he wouldn't let her touch him. 
So Simon had some idea who she was. So I'm imagining this woman, maybe in this town where people know who she is. Maybe she's famous for her sins. Maybe her family still faithfully goes to the synagogue where Simon is probably one of the leaders. But she doesn't go. She's gone. She's an outcast. She's an outsider. But it's not weird for her to go to Simon's house when Jesus is having dinner. Now, you might be envisioning... um, more of a customary dinner like we would have in America in the 21st century, where if I invite you over for dinner, you would come to my house, and we might have the blinds open, um, but the doors typically would be shut, and the dinner would be attended by my family and those people that I've invited. It wasn't that way in this day and age. You see, a Pharisee was most likely a wealthy man, and his house had a dining area that was a semi-public space had huge windows, bigger than these windows. They remind me, as I see pictures of old um, uh, architecture of this, they remind me of the very old uh, worship hall at Fort Hill Church Camp that had these big wooden windows that were really wide, and you would lift them up and kind of hook them, and everyone could kind of stand outside the building and still participate with what's happening inside. And this dining area was kind of public, and so when teachers would come and dine with Simon the Pharisee, There would be people gathering around. They would sit outside. They would sit on the windowsill. And what they would get would be not just a spectacle of celebrities, but some teaching. And they would listen. It'd be as they talked about the Bible and theology that Simon and and the teacher would probably do this. And so this woman is one of the many visitors sitting around the outside of this dining area where the dinner is happening. You can't blame them. They didn't really have Netflix back then, so this is their form of entertainment. They just went to watch and see what the rich people and the smart people would talk about. So this is why it's not so strange that she enters into the dining area. It's not like she kicked down the door and elbowed the butler out of the way. and you know, It's not how it worked. She probably was sitting on a windowsill, and maybe she saw Jesus come in. And maybe she saw Jesus get slighted by not having his feet washed or his head anointed or even a greeting of a kiss. And something was stirring in this woman. And so she probably inched forward to Jesus and in his presence became overwhelmed. She probably lost a little bit of control by just being so frustrated at the way he was treated and overwhelmed by being in his presence, a man who was there with such graciousness And such ability to heal not just her body, but her soul. And so she reacts. Now let me clarify something about Simon. Simon's a Pharisee, and oftentimes, even from this very pulpit here, Pharisees don't get a great uh, rap. They don't get a great uh, light put on them. They're oftentimes seen as sort of the downcast or the problem people of the New Testament. And they are put that way oftentimes. But Simon, as a Pharisee, That does not mean when you were a Pharisee that you woke up every morning and decided, you know what, today I'm going to be a self-righteous jerk. That's what I'm going to be. Pharisees didn't do that. Pharisees did not wake up and say, what I'd like to do is be a snob and a jerk and mean to people. That's not what Pharisees did. The word Pharisee actually just means separate. And what the Pharisees did is they actually cared incredibly deeply about the future of their nation. Judea and Israel. They cared about the future of this nation. They actually believed that they were under Roman rule because God's people had not turned back to God and they were still disobeying God. And they had this deep belief that if we would just get back to obeying God, that our country would be blessed. Does that sound familiar? 
That's what they believed. And so they were ardent about this. They were, they were convinced of this. And so you can see why he would be so frustrated with this woman. From that belief, he sees this woman as the problem of why their nation is still under Roman control and they're not being blessed by God. She's a sinner. She's the problem. And if we could just fix her, God would finally bless us. And so Simon, in his own mind, not out loud, questions the legitimacy of Jesus. If this man really were a prophet, he would know the kind of woman who is touching him. And there's overtones of sexuality in Simon's words that are used there that Luke records that he was saying he wouldn't let her, this kind of woman, touch, her, touch him in that way. If he really were a prophet. So he's questioning in his own mind the legitimacy of Jesus. And Jesus answers this unspoken question as only a prophet could do, right? In a beautiful way. He gives him a story in hopes that he could destroy the very worldview that Simon holds. And the story is about a man who is a debt collector, a lender of money. And he has a man who he has lended 50 denarii, 50 days of work to, money, and a man who he's lended 500 denarii of money to. And he forgives both of them. And the story goes like this. Which one of them, Simon, do you think will be more grateful, would love more the, the debt collector who has now released him of this burden? And he says, obviously, the man who's been forgiven more will love more. And he says, Simon, you're absolutely right. And you're altogether wrong. You understand here the logic, but you don't understand your debt. And so he destroys, hopefully, this man's unfavorable understanding of this problem. Let me ask you two questions. The first one's this. What made this woman an outsider? Why was she an outsider? There's a lot of reasons. You can start with, first of all, her record. Her record. She absolutely has a history, a life behavior that separates her from other people. It says that she's a woman of the city. That's biblical under overtones of the fact that she probably was a prostitute. She probably practiced and made her living that way. When they said she was a woman of the city, that doesn't mean that she had a condo in a high-rise downtown and she was fancy. That's not what that means. That means that she was probably a prostitute who made her living in the city using sexuality. So she had this way, and she was under the classification of sinner. Now, sinner for those people were the group of those who stopped participating in worship and service to God. That's who the sinners were. So when you read through the New Testament, you hear a group of people called the sinners. Those are the ones that don't go to church anymore. That's what they mean by that classification. So she's a woman of the city, and she's a sinner. And she has brought her own discomfort and her own insecurity upon herself because she has chosen a lifestyle that makes it awkward for her to be around those who are living their way, life according to God's commandments. And so she's brought some of this discomfort upon herself. But her record isn't the only thing that makes her an outsider. The other thing that makes her an outsider is her behavior in that moment, that day. You see, she broke every social norm that you could think of in this dinner time, in this story. She enters the dining area. Now, she is a poor, impoverished, 
woman who is a sinner. She was not invited into the dining hall to eat with these people, yet she has come in there. She is weeping loudly. She's making a commotion. She's um, causing a ruckus and grabbing attention. She's breaking that social norm. And she lets her hair down. Now, that doesn't sound too strange probably for us, but for a, Jew, for a Jewish woman, this was a serious problem. Letting your hair down is equivalent to being topless for a, a Jewish woman. Her hair was actually supposed to be covered, and to let her hair down was her glory that was only to be revealed to her husband in the privacy of their own home. So when she lets her hair down after weeping uncontrollably to dry his feet, it is completely taboo. And then she anoints him with an alabaster flask of perfume on his feet. You see, people oftentimes do feel like outsiders because they haven't figured out or they're not falling in line with all the social rules, whether they're spoken or unspoken, that the group kind of knows about. And some of you might be here today and know what that feels like to kind of feel like an outsider. Maybe church is not the first place that you feel most comfortable. Maybe you come in here and you're like, well, I don't maybe have the right clothes or I don't know the right words. or I don't know the right order of how things go here. And maybe you feel like an outsider because you haven't picked up on how all that goes. That's oftentimes what makes people feel like outsiders is that they don't know exactly how to carry themselves. And I am one who can attest to knowing what that feels like. I, uh, as an, uh, I'll admit to you, I grew up as an outsider in church. My mom and dad, my mom was converted when I was two. My brother was four. And my mom was a church hopper. You know what that is? A church hopper, not just the same church. She would hop to every church in the town because we were really poor. We were on welfare. And she would go from church to church seeking money. And once she was uh, 30 years old, she came down with a chicken pox and got down to 65 pounds, went into the hospital and almost died. And my brother and I, with my dad and her, lived in this one-bedroom apartment across the street from the church building, New Concord Church of Christ. And these three older women heard the story about what was going on with our family. And they started coming over and bringing dinner to us. And they asked my dad if he needed help. And, of course, he needed the boys to be watched so that he could be at the hospital. And they start watching me and my brother. And then all of a sudden, my mom, after a month in the hospital, recovers and comes home. And these three women... Uh, who had taken care of us, became our babysitters the rest of our life. And then they converted my mom. My dad wouldn't come until about 12 years later. He still was living a pretty rough lifestyle. But my mom, what was interesting about my mom, those of you that have been in church for a long time will laugh at this, went forward every Sunday. <laughs> well, what she heard from the pulpit was, if there's anybody in here who has any need, you need to be prayed for, you need to be encouraged, come forward. And you know what she did every Sunday? She went forward. It made sense to her. She was an outsider. She didn't understand the norms. But you know what those people did? Every Sunday they prayed for her. Every Sunday. And maybe you're here and you don't know what that feels like, or maybe you do feel like an outsider. That's one of the major obligations we have is to welcome people who don't yet know how all the things function and flow. And that's okay. Because figuring out the social norms is not what makes you an insider. We're going to learn here in just a moment what makes you an insider. You see, what made her an outsider was actually not her record, nor was it her behavior. Hear me. What made her an outsider was Simon's system. You got to get this, okay, Christian? Understand this. You see, Simon didn't invent this system, but Simon is continuing this system in which he lives. Do you notice what he says in his mind 
about this woman? He says, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know what sort of woman this is. Do you understand the word sort? It means category. It means collection. It means a particular subset. He's saying in his mind, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know what category this woman belongs in, what group she belongs in. He was saying he would know if he were a prophet, she's an outsider and we're insiders because prophets know who's out and who's in. You see, system is a sorting people into categories. And sometimes this can be harmless. We put people into categories all, time, all the time. Maybe it's age or gender or likes or dislikes. And categories can be harmless if we're trying to just gather people into particular groups. But they can be incredibly harmful if the category is that which gives you access to blessing. Just think about the Jim Crow laws in the South post-Civil War for many, many years. Those were categorizations that were harmful to people for a period of time. You see, Simon has categories, but they were simple. His categories were this. There are the sort of people who deserve God's blessing, and there are a sort of people who don't deserve God's blessing. There are a sort of people who are righteous and a sort of people who are unrighteous. And this woman does not belong, but we do. This woman is an outsider because Simon created a world of insiders that looked exactly like him. That's why she was an outsider. So let's finish with this question. How do we take the mission of the gospel to outsiders? The story tells us two things Jesus did. Really simple. Number one, Jesus starts by rebuking the insider. That's where he starts. And if we're going to be people that take the mission of the gospel to those who feel like outsiders, we're probably the ones that first have to be rebuked by Jesus to be ready to do that. That's what Jesus does. He does it with a story that challenges Simon and how Simon views sin, and he challenges us how we view sin. You see, at first when you read this story, verses 36 through 50, when Mike was reading this for us, you probably thought, well, this is a story about Jesus and a righteous person versus an unrighteous, or a saint versus a sinner. You've got Simon the saint, and you've got the unnamed woman the sinner. But that's really not how it works. This kind of thinking only happens when we pick certain things that make people right and certain things that make people wrong and ignore the other ones. For example, when you think that God will overlook my greed, but I'm sure he'll condemn gambling. I'm convinced of it. When you think that God will overlook my pride, but I know he condemns prostitution. When I am convinced that God will overlook my addiction to gossip, but I'm certain that he'll condemn addiction to alcohol or drugs. When you pick things that God will condemn and ignore things that you think God won't condemn, what you create is an us versus them. Saint, sinner, righteous, unrighteous that is built solely upon lists that we make that make insiders and outsiders. You see, there's actually a better option that Jesus is trying to teach you. That it's not us versus them, but it's actually us collectively versus sin. Every single person versus sin. And to try to get Simon to understand this, Jesus tells this story about forgiveness. And what he's trying to say is, Simon, your life, 
the way you treat me, the way you receive me demonstrates that you do not understand your need for forgiveness. You see, Simon understands the logic. A guy that's forgiven 500 days of work versus a guy forgiven 50 will obviously be more thankful, more grateful, and love the debtor or love the debt collector who forgives him more, obviously. But in that story, Simon does not connect the fact that he is a debtor that owes way more than 500 days of work. He doesn't get it. And so he lacks gratitude, has no grace towards Jesus, has no thankfulness. You see, here's the reality that that Jesus wants Simon to understand. The only insider is the one inside Jesus Christ. That's the only insider. Every person must take the route of humility to get on the inside of Jesus Christ. And so at first, the way we take the mission to outsiders is insiders got to be rebuked, got to be clarified. That it's not a us versus them, but it's all of us. Wherever you come from, however you make your way into this building today, all of us together versus sin, to get rid of sin. And the second thing is this. Jesus doesn't rebuke the, just rebuke the insider. He receives the outsider. He receives her. You see, he gives her a place with all of her flaws and all of her sins, all of her history, all of her social faux pas, all of that. He just lets her sit there. Have you noticed that Jesus doesn't hush her crying saying, woman, be quiet, I'm trying to teach Simon. He doesn't pull his feet away saying, that, that's enough, my feet are clean now. He doesn't say, no, no, I don't really need to have, be anointed, that smells too strong. And even when he's teaching Simon, he turns to the woman and he looks at the woman and speaks with his back to Simon. And he looks at her. You see, he gives her a place. He gives her dignity. He gives her respect. And he gives this woman confirmation that he is glad that she is there. If we're going to take this mission to outsiders, we've got to be overtly glad that they're with us and make sure they know that. Number two, Jesus grants her forgiveness. Her life is bearing the fruit of a forgiven person. You can... Um, accidentally read this passage wrong where you could think that because she loves Jesus, she's going to be forgiven. That's not what he means by that. In fact, he goes on to say the story that whoever is forgiven much will love much. The forgiveness produces the love. The love doesn't produce the forgiveness. And because she adores and loves and is magnifying Jesus, he's saying your life is demonstrating that you understand how much you've been forgiven. And in that, he releases her with the peace that she needs because of her faith. He grants her the kind of forgiveness that she needs so that she can live her life. And thirdly, he does this. He accepts what she offers him. I find it interesting that this woman had eyes that once batted at men to attract them to her bedroom. And they're now shedding tears to wash his feet. Her hair that was reserved for the glory of a husband is now reduced to a hand towel. Lips that once kissed men so that she could make money are now kissing the dirty feet of her Savior. And perfume that was once used to adorn her bed and to be put on her body so that men would be lured to her is now being offered to her Savior. You see, what she is offering Jesus is not just tears or hair or kisses or perfume. What she's offering to Jesus is faith and humility, repentance, submission, in gratitude. 
You see, that's the kind of fruit that Jesus is looking for. All these other things that we think that we bring to the throne of God and have him be impressed with us to say, wow, look what you've brought me. Look what you've done. I'm so impressed by you. He misses the point oftentimes. What he's looking for is this kind of faith and this kind of humility that knows that my debt is way more than 500. It's 5,000 times 5,000. I'll never be able to pay it back. And when he forgives us, that faith and that humility and that gratitude that bubbles up out of love is the kind of fruit that he looks for and he accepts her offering. There's one last character in the story that you don't want to miss. It's a group of people, unnamed, that are sitting around the table and they have one question they ask. Who in the world is this guy that can forgive sin? Who is he? Who has the power to let this woman be forgiven and restored to a right standing with God? And there are only two ways you can ask this question. You can ask this question about another person, like this group. You can look at somebody and say, who in the world could forgive that person? Look what they've done. Look how far they've fallen off the path. Who in the world could forgive them? To doubt that someone so outside could actually make their way inside. There's no way. That's one way you can ask this question. The other way you can ask this question is to ask it about yourself. Who in the world could ever forgive me? You see, if you're asking the first way about somebody else, Jesus is trying to say to you, you're actually the one on the outside. You see, this false belief that we're on the inside because of who we are and what we've done actually makes us be on the outside. And we still don't know our desperate need for his forgiveness. We're out in the cold, missing the warm fire of grace that brings the kind of joy and peace that Jesus can offer. But if you're asking the question the second way, who in the world could ever forgive me? I've done too much, been too many places, thought too many things. There's no way I could go from outside to inside. How in the world could I be forgiven? It's a legitimate question. If we've done literal things that are wrong, legitimate things that have harmed God, that have violated the, the law of God, it's a very fair question to say, how can I have this kind of forgiveness? How can Jesus have this power to forgive? You see, Jesus doesn't just arbitrarily grant forgiveness like you're forgiven and you're forgiven out of the thin air. The forgiveness that Jesus offers is not just mere words that he just whispers into the air. It is something that he has earned. He has an eternal reservoir of garnered and earned forgiveness that he grants to people that belongs to him. You see, because he died the death on the cross that every person deserved to die. And when he did that, what went into his storage barn was the kind of forgiveness that you need that only he can grant. And when you believe that he died the death that you deserved, lived the life perfectly that you should have lived, and now is resurrected back to life to have the power to give it back to you, the forgiveness that you need, you'll finally believe that he has the power to forgive me. And when you understand that conviction about yourself that yes, you need his forgiveness. My debt is greater than anyone could ever imagine. My debt is greater than this woman. My debt is greater than even this Pharisee. We all have a kind of debt that we can't pay back. And Jesus has earned the right to forgive us and has the power to forgive us and has the desire to forgive us. He wants no one to be left outside. And neither should we. If you feel like an outsider, whether you are in sin or just socially, we want to help you come closer to Jesus and come closer to us so that we can walk together on our way to heaven. Let's stand and sing.